Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I am Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, a momentous event at the UN in New York. The Paris Climate Agreement was signed by over 170 world leaders. The complex agreement seeks to significantly reduce the world's carbon emission by 2025 and beyond. And it's going to take significant cooperation to achieve the goals laid out in this historic document. Well, and how great was it that this accord was signed on Earth Day, Mark, uh, for those who remember Earth Day? It's the first time after decades of attempts that all nations at the table were able to reach the agreement, including the U.S., which has held off from committing to climate change agreements in the past. So very exciting. As we know, Margaret, uh, climate change has a direct impact on global health, and we're already seeing the effects, which experts say will only worsen over time, more frequent and devastating storms, rising sea levels leading to epic floods, crushing droughts, as well as record heat waves, all of which impact air quality and safe drinking water, agriculture and the spread of diseases, and housing along the world's coastal regions would be especially vulnerable due to threats from rising sea levels. The World Health Organization has estimated that if left unabated, climate change will lead to an estimated quarter of a million deaths worldwide every year by 2030 and beyond. It does seem the global consensus has overridden the naysayers. Climate change is real. It's based in science. It presents an imminent threat to global health. And now at least maybe we have a framework in place to tackle the worst of the anticipated effects. Part of what makes this possible is now that we have technologies that will assist us in weaning off our dependence on fossil fuels. But it's going to take a sea change in the global community, especially in the business community. If we're going to be able to turn the tide, this agreement is a very important and bold step forward. Well, there's a tide shifting in healthcare as well, Mark, thanks to scientific breakthroughs, emerging technologies, big data, which we hear so much about, and health IT capabilities. And all of this is something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Eric Dishman is the newly appointed director of the Precision Medicine Initiative at the National Institutes of Health. It's a very ambitious project that's been launched by President Obama to advance precision medicine in the 21st century, something we were waiting quite a while for. And Dishman has a long career of health innovation at Intel and has a personal story that illuminates the need for personalized medicine and much better use of health data. We're really looking forward to that conversation. And Laurie Robertson, of course, will be stopping by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Eric Dishman in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Health insurer United Healthcare, the nation's largest, made waves last week announcing they were pulling out of most of the markets where they've been participating in the insurance exchanges. The insurance behemoth saying they're pulling out of all but a handful of exchanges where they've been participating, 34 states total, down to just a few. According to analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation, the insurer's exit from the exchanges leaves about 10 states, mostly in the South and Midwest, with only one insurance provider to choose from. The health insurer still plans to invest in its own primary care delivery system, promoting a payer-promoted version of value-based care delivery. 
Just a day before it was supposed to launch, the Obama administration announced it was postponing the Hospital Star rating system on its Hospital Compare website. The star rating system was to have been an attempt to synthesize disparate ratings metrics on hospital performance around the country and patient outcomes as well to something more easily understood by consumers. Five-star ratings, with five being the best. The ratings were based on mortality, hospital readmission rates, effectiveness and timeliness of care. The American Hospital Association's contention was the rating system based on Medicare data wouldn't necessarily be helpful to, say, a woman seeking a place to give birth. A recent study shed light on the impact of wealth and health, revealing the gap between haves and have-nots is significant when it comes to life expectancy. The study done by a consortium of researchers from Stanford, Harvard, and MIT showed the gap between them grew in the post-recession period, with the life expectancy of wealthy males growing during that time period, while the poor saw a decline in life expectancy overall. Now another study out showing the life expectancy for white women has retreated just a bit. Alcohol, drug abuse, and suicide being pointed to as some of the reasons. Decline for Caucasian women was slight, 81.1 years, down from 81.2 years overall. And type 2 diabetes, expected to afflict some 89 million Americans by 2030. The baby boom generation aging into a tsunami of chronic illness. Conventional wisdom has been, once diagnosed, always thus afflicted, with an illness that will get progressively worse over time. There's some mounting evidence the condition can be reversed with diet. A small study done in England recently showed some interesting results. A cohort of patients diagnosed with type 2 diabetes put on a strict liquid diet regimen actually put their condition into remission, even six months after the special diet had ended. The researchers followed the participants after they completed an eight-week low-cal milkshake diet and returned to normal eating. Six months later, those who'd gone into remission immediately after the diet were still diabetes-free. Researchers have been able to reverse diabetes in obese patients who received bariatric or gastric bypass surgery. The key, according to experts, is being able to keep the weight off. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Eric Dishman, director of the Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program at the National Institute of Health. Mr. Dishman is a researcher, social scientist, innovator, and patient advocate, having served as vice president and fellow of Intel Corporation's Health and Life Science Group. He founded Intel's first health research and innovation lab in 2002 and was a founding member of the company's digital health group. Mr. Dishman launched several nonprofits dedicated to health innovation and served on the president's Precision Medicine Initiative Advisory Board. He holds a bachelor's degree in speech communication from the University of North Carolina. He earned his master's degree in speech communication from Southern Illinois University. Eric, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. You know, uh, first of all, I've got to say, I really enjoyed your TED Talk, and I know you're going to tell us about your own personal story. But first of all, congratulations on your appointment as the director of the Precision Medicine Initiative at NIH. Certainly, you found yourself in a role of patient and subsequently a patient advocate about 20 years ago when a dire diagnosis led to a uh, just an incredible odyssey with the uh, with the health system, and I wonder if you could uh, tell our listeners about your own journey and uh, how it led you to develop your own views on personal uh, health systems, and how would you describe personalized or precision medicine from your point of view? Well, you know, it all started. I was age nineteen at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Started 
passing out while at work. You know, was a healthy guy, was working, training for a marathon at the time, couldn't figure out what was going on with this, and, you know, eventually started doing scans and different things in my body and found out I had a kidney problem. And it didn't take long before they came and said, we have a rare form of kidney cancer and you've got about a year to live. This, at a guy who felt no pain, felt right. just fine, <laughs> was running a lot. And that basically started a 23-year odyssey of cancer and cancer treatment, more than five dozen rounds of treatment of, you know, between immunotherapy, radiation therapy, chemo, different combinations mm-hmm. therein. After about the first decade when they said, you know, each year you'd live for another year, I said, it's been a decade now. I think you just need to stop saying <laughs> that. <laughs> Good for you. But, I, you know, it, it all came to a head about uh, five years ago. I was in full kidney failure. I was on my last business trip uh, as, as Intel's executive in charge of health, life, and sciences, or at least what I thought was going to be my last business trip, because my kidneys had both failed. I was about to have to start dialysis, and the chemotherapies that I were on, it was at least keeping things moving slowly I was going to have to go off of. And I thought, okay, this is it. And on that last business trip, I visited a genomic startup and they needed a bunch of Intel's fastest computers and storage to be able to deal with these huge files mm-hmm. that happen when your genome is sequenced. And they said, well, why don't we sequence you? And they did, and I didn't think much about it. That was that. I mean, I sort of understood what sequencing was. They explained it to me. I'm not a biologist. I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then seven months later, my team lets me know that they've been working with the company. They'd never done this before, a patient before. And they came back and said, well, bad news is 92% of every drug we ever put you on was destined never to have worked. So the good news is we think that your cancer, even though it's in your kidneys, acts more like the mechanisms that cause pancreatic cancer. We want to put you on an experimental drug for pancreatic cancer. Three months later, I'm cancer-free for the first time in 23 years, eligible for a kidney transplant, and now at age 48, I'm healthier than I was when I was 19. You know, I'm not sure there's any follow-up question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the question is, how do we make that available to everybody? That's exactly the question I was going to ask you, but it is is just a conversation stopper. And even while you're at Intel, your passion for innovation, as you oversaw research and development of wide-ranging technologies that have helped advance personalized medicine, is legendary for this. And you've, uh, you've talked about how, as a teenager, you even crafted your own telemonitoring solution from products you found at the local radio shack for that's a right. grandparent dealing with Alzheimer's. In all seriousness, you know, it seems the infrastructure hasn't been there, but the funding incentives haven't been in place until now either. So talk about this recent shift in the incentives part of the equation and your sense of whether this is going to lead to a real acceleration of personalized medicine. Well, it's interesting. My first startup was for Paul Allen's think tank more than 25 years ago, and it was a telehealth startup focused on independent living for seniors. That had been motivated by certainly caring for my grandmother when I was 16 and also had been motivated by the two of the times that I came closest to death in my own cancer journey were driven by hospital-borne infections. And and we've known for a long time that you could actually do care effectively, safely from the home. But until the paradigm of payment for healthcare shifted from fee-for-service and until we start to shift the incentives towards prevention, we're stuck in this perverse incentive world in which hey, care at home that can be done more safely and cheaply, well, sorry, don't get paid for it. Well, until you have great people giving the best care possible in a very reactive medicine paradigm that the financial incentives didn't match with. And in my Intel role running global public policy on healthcare, in addition to the other things I did, showed great value to them that they really wanted, could never see a market. The moment these healthcare reforms started to pass, you know, the innovation engine started up. 
and and there was suddenly incentive for hospitals to want to figure out how do they distribute care beyond the hospital. How do we understand your genetics and your your medical history and collect all that data on you so that we can develop a prevention plan that's going to keep you from ever having to go into the hospital? Hmm. We've been following reporting on since the president's State of the Union address where he announced the uh, Precision Medicine Initiative and the goal is to research a cohort of about a million Americans and supply that vital health information and biosamples to Central Data Bank, all, of course, de-identified. And and you're working with NIH uh, Director Francis Collins, who we've had on the show a couple of times, who's looking to, uh, to the nation's community health centers to help provide many of these volunteers. Could you talk uh, to our listeners about how you plan to get this first important step underway? Sure. As a patient, I said, oh my gosh, this is a means by which I can achieve my now life goal of getting other patients access to the same kind of care. This is a global competition, and as we see the investments in China and Europe Mm -hmm. to be at the forefront of precision medicine, the cohort program is this audacious goal, and we're going to achieve it, of uh, a million or more American volunteers being willing to donate their data to science and to accelerate science and medical breakthroughs for precision medicine. Nowhere in the world have we ever collected data on a wide range of people with health status. This will be a million Americans with a diversity of disease states or wellness states, and we'll understand for the first time with new data types the unfolding of disease. And at a size of a, of a research program where we'll even be able to make discoveries around rare diseases that you can't understand until you get a million or more Americans actually volunteering for it. It'll also be things like uh, genomic data and and the new areas of like wearable data and imaging data as we start to see more and more smartphones and wearables around. So the combination of those data types as well as the diversity of the people in the cohort will help us make breakthroughs in people that have never been studied before. Well, Eric, I understand that resources have also been allocated to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT to foster interoperability between systems to facilitate the flow of all this data. How are you going to tackle what has until now been a kind of daunting gauntlet for developers to run in order to bring discoveries and innovations to the marketplace at a more rapid pace? One of the key aspects of the of the program is we want any American who uh, to be able to volunteer themselves. It's called the direct volunteer program. The fundamental enabler of that is making it easy for them to tell their clinician if they have one or to give them access to clinical access to say, I want to be able to share my electronic health data um, for research. I mean, we call it Sync for Science. The, the work that, that ONC had already done to help build out the nation's infrastructure and getting people adopting meaningful use of electronic health records was a first step. And then the effort to to now, and, and I got to attend the first uh, staff meeting with the secretary, with the head of FDA, with the head of ONC, and see that it's an all-department effort trying to make these PMI efforts successful. Money to the National Cancer Institute, to ONC, there's the cohort program, and then the FDA, and they're all contributing for the success of how do we accelerate precision medicine for all. Part of the key of this is we're collecting a, net, a data set in the cohort program that almost no other institution could collect at such scale. You know, enabling all of these researchers with the right access and credentials, obviously, to come and use the data to accelerate their scientific questions, as well as actually citizen scientists who may be interested in using the data set. We're going to liberate this data with the appropriate de-identification and security in place 
so that 10,000 flowers or 100,000 flowers may bloom of research studies that then move to clinical practice. We're speaking today with Eric Dishman, director of the Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program at the National Institute of Health. Mr. Dishman has served as vice president and fellow of Intel's Health and Life Science Group, where he oversaw Intel's effort in health IT, genomics, and personalized medicine. Eric, you said earlier that you uh, found the answers to your own medical questions through genomic breakthroughs and said it obviously uh, saved your life. And you've talked about the ideal uh, personalized health system of the future uh, that will include each patient having their genomic information as a standard part of their individual health profile. Talk about these emerging disciplines and how important they are to achieve the intended goals of precision medicine. And what kind of infrastructure will be required? Well, the the PMI cohort program and, and precision medicine in general there's four streams of data that need to be brought to bear. Clinical and claims data, your, your medical history and, and database of your past history, imaging data and other diagnostic data that's been collected over, over the years for you. You know, often that's sitting in databases today. It's just been difficult to pull it all into one place and make it more interoperable. And the two new emerging data types that we believe will be game-changing, and genomics was in my own case, mm-hmm. are omic data data types, and genomics is the first one. There's also metabolomics and proteomics, and um, and then the wearable consumer-generated data, whether it's you answering survey data, which many our, our volunteers will, will be doing as part of the cohort program, or you know, collecting wearable data from devices they already have or new diagnostic devices that can go in the home. It's really the synergy of those four data types into knowledge. When I was taught how to be a patient advocate from a patient advocate right when I got cancer, a woman named Verna, she used the phrase with me, knowledge is survival. Mm-hmm. And when I was first diagnosed, she took me to the Duke University Library that day and showed me the statistics for people that had been studied with the disease that I had. I'm 19 years old, diagnosed with that disease at the time. I've been told that I'm going to live a year. But when you go look at the studies that inform that knowledge that you only have a year to live, the vast majority of the people that were ever studied were in their 70s and 80s. Very interesting. So they literally had no yep. knowledge about somebody with 19 with this disease. Today, the healthcare system is doing the best it can to individualize care to you, but with almost no knowledge about you because the data is not collected into one place or in a format that can be used. Mm-hmm. You know, precision medicine is about knowledge-based care for you as an individual and knowledge-based care for the whole population. You know, what are the trends that we actually need to work on and what are the problems that we can anticipate at a population level, but then how do we customize care to you as an individual? We don't know what we don't know about what's going to be useful. We're starting to make breakthroughs with some genetic testing for like the BRCA gene for cancer, for Mm -hmm. breast cancer. And there's an increasing pipeline of data that's coming out almost weekly. It says, okay, here's a mutation that correlates with this cancer. That's part of what PMI has to do. There's so much dark matter in the genome we don't understand and so many correlations we don't understand. And if we add things like wearable and diagnostic data that's coming in real time, pulling those data types together to do the basic science first, and then once that science is proven out, say, okay, we need clinical interventions, whether it's behavioral change or a drug, testing those out at a scale that we can say, yes, we're confident about those. And just you know, moving that science and clinical practice along forward, that's job one for what PMI cohort needs to do. Well, you spoke a few times, you mentioned the home, and you know, people think about care at home, I think, still with kind of an old days view to this. You know, maybe it's when the visiting nurse came to see you at home or mm-hmm. you know. But you've been talking about the home as a node of care. And 
We've had certainly an explosion of health monitoring devices, and we have connected home diagnostic systems. There's wearables that healthy people are wearing at home and, and providing data. But tell us uh, how you think that these technologies all support the ideal personal health system. These are really available to us today, so maybe you could describe your vision of that. In our Intel work, particularly with older people that we've studied and prototypes that we built, one of the first early studies that we did long before there was this phrase, the Internet of Things, was trying to outfit some simple sensing on medication dispensers or pill bottles in the home of frail seniors who were struggling to take their many meds a day and to help their families from a distance know, you know, are they they up around their normal time? Are they getting coffee? And did they take their meds, Right. right? Think of that pattern, that rhythm of somebody in their home. Your mom in her home is almost a a, a vital sign in and of itself. She's Mm -hmm. got her routine Mm -hmm. and being able to know that there's been a real change in her routine. There's two sets of questions around that. First is how do you alert family caregivers or neighbors that there's, there's been a change? Can you check in and make sure something's okay? But it's possible that the collection of that data over a long period of time could significantly help you understand the emergence or the even differentiation of different kinds of dementia that are emerging. Or, But back then, we didn't have the algorithms and the machine learning to know that. So we did some simple things like different medication reminder strategies for different people. And we would find, you know, some one individual liked the voice of Oprah reminding her to take her pills. <laughs> Somebody else liked their television show being interrupted and say, go take your meds and it wouldn't play football again. <laughs> the point was that was precision medicine. Yeah. That had nothing to do with genomics. Yeah. That was simple wearable sensors and some software customizing to your style and preference and behavior mm-hmm. the kind of medication reminder that you wanted, Right. So that's just why I try to use that example to say genomics is important, but so are these other data types. And, you know, we can actually collect movement data about you because your watch is capturing it. What could it tell us about the emergence of heart disease or arthritis? The fundamental science will be done as a result of the PMI cohort program. You know, another health-focused initiative that the president launched in this past year is his Moonshot for Cancer, which uh, I believe the vice president's going to be heading up. And very focused in on uh, multidisciplinary teams of experts working together, and uh, you know the value of that. Tell us what the intersection will look like between the work that you and your team will be doing at the Precision Medicine Initiative and how it intersects with the president's Moonshot for Cancer. It's certainly true that the PMI cohort program, you know, people will have and will get cancer over the course of the lifetime of the study. When we do it right, I think it'll be decades long, and it'll be something like the Framingham Heart Study that continues to teach America and the world breakthroughs in in medical science. So we will be contributing and sharing data with both the PMI cancer effort, NCI effort, as well as the cancer moonshot. And one of the things I just love the fact that Vice President Biden is out doing is really pressing for the universities, the companies who have collected data to share it Mm -hmm. so that they can have large enough data sets to really make new breakthroughs. It's one of the last things I'm doing as I walk out the door is our Collaborative Cancer Cloud program. And it's really a technology that allows people to share access to their data for analysis without moving that data. That issue of data sharing must be overcome because the The million-person cohort is going to be a massive data set that we've never had on the planet to use before. At the same time, there's all this existing data that these players have and finding ways to insist that they share data for the greater advancement of science and medical breakthroughs. I just love the vice president's messages on that. 
Perfect. We've been speaking today with Eric Dishman, Director of the Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program at the National Institutes of Health. You can learn more about their work and how you might get involved by going to NIH.gov precision-medicine-initiative-cohort-program or simply follow him on Twitter at Eric Dishman. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare and best of luck in your very important new position. Thank you and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Have Washington, DC and Chicago been at the top of the list for years in terms of murder rates? That's what Senator Ted Cruz said in arguing against gun control laws. But Cruz is wrong about that. He went on to distort the facts in claiming that most jurisdictions with the worst murder rates have the very strictest gun control laws. Studies actually suggest the opposite. States with a higher number of firearms restrictions have lower firearm deaths. But that's only an association, not a causal relationship. Cruz, who's running for the Republican presidential nomination, was responding to a question about guns being shipped to New York from southern states with more lenient gun control laws. He pointed to Washington, D.C. and Chicago, saying both of them have for years effectively banned firearms, and both of them have for years been right at the top of murder rates. Chicago has been near the top in total numbers of annual murders, but its rate, expressed as a percentage of the population, is nowhere near the top, as a Pew Research Center analysis of 28 years of FBI data found. In 2014, Chicago's murder rate was 35th highest among cities with 100,000 or more residents. Washington has had the highest murder rate in the past, but the last time was in 1999. In 2014, D.C. had the 29th highest rate in the country. As for the relationship between gun laws and murder rates, there is no evidence that gun control laws result in more murders, and the Cruz campaign did not respond with any evidence when we asked. Several studies counter Cruz's claim and find instead that stronger gun control laws are associated with lower rates of gun homicides. For instance, a 2013 study by researchers at Boston Children's Hospital and the Harvard School of Public Health measured the strength of state's gun control laws and mortality rates from 2007 to 2010. The study found that a higher number of gun laws are associated with a lower rate of gun deaths overall and for suicides and homicides individually. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. No parent wants to hear their young child's chronic health issues are a result of serious defects. 
requiring complex and risky surgery. But that was exactly the case for three-year-old Mia Gonzalez, plagued for years with severe life-threatening respiratory issues in multiple hospitalizations. Her doctors discovered the cause was a severe aortic abnormality that would eventually kill her without intervention. Dr. Redmond Burke, head of the pediatric cardiovascular surgery at Nichols Children's Hospital in Miami, would once have deemed her condition inoperable. So he chose a new tactic, create a 3D printed model of her actual heart to offer surgeons a chance to map out an approach to the complex surgery that would not only minimize the high level of risk, but also yield a more hopeful outcome. This was printed out because she was thought to be inoperable. And by having this type of model, we were able to con conceive of an operation that hadn't been done before, connecting the small veins from her lungs up to her heart. Dr. Burke said he carried the heart around with him for weeks, analyzing the problem from every conceivable angle, sharing ideas with colleagues until they agreed upon the best surgical solution. The surgery ended up being a resounding success. Her operation was extremely successful and she's recovering very well. And now her life, instead of being uh, measured in terms of days and weeks, is gonna be measured in terms of years and decades. Dr. Burke said that prior to 3D printing technology like this, they would have deemed her case inoperable or at least too risky to chance. This offered a visual problem-solving solution before subjecting his young patient to complications from risky surgery. Creating stem cell-generated 3D printed organs for implementation is still years away. This method of deploying 3D technology could help surgeons everywhere create workable solutions to complex surgical problems. A 3D printed model of a patient's organ offering surgeons a visual tool to help tackle complex surgical dilemmas, leading to better surgical outcomes. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.